Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. Back to another episode of Movie House Memories, the podcast where we look back and review the films that we think are the most important films in cinema history. I'm Patrick, and with me are two people who spent a large portion of their lives in darkened movie theaters. First, he's our resident lumberjack and the man who sees symbolism in his cornflakes. He's one of the co-hosts of the Criterion Critics and Lunchtime Movie Review podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network, Bobby Taylor. I uh, walk in with a cigarette, but somebody's already offered me one. <laughs> cigarette? Smoking. <laughs> <laughs> also with us, uh, she has appeared as one of the co-hosts of the Sunday Seconds with the Duke, as well as the Golden Age of the Silver Screen podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network. She's the sole female voice of the show and my podcast better half, Lori Flores. Hello. All right. Welcome, everyone. And before we get started, we'd like to thank all the returning listeners to the show and welcome all new listeners to Movie House Memories. Thanks for uh, giving us a try. We appreciate your time and attention and ho- hope you keep on listening and following us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those two social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, you can also now subscribe to our account on YouTube, where we're now releasing our podcasts exclusively. Uh, Once there, if you subscribe to our account, you can get updates on when we post new material. You can give us a like or a dislike, and you can leave a comment about either our opinions, the films that we're reviewing, or even a suggestion for a film that you think should be in the top 100 films of all time. And whether you're a frequent listener or a brand new fan of our little show, we hope that you take your time after you're done listening and provide us with a little feedback as well. You can uh, do this a couple different ways. If you've listened to us on YouTube, as I stated before, you can give us a like or a dislike and leave a comment there. Or you can visit our website at moviehousememories.com and leave a comment about either our podcast, our opinions, or the film that we're reviewing. Finally, on our website, you can leave your star review rating of the film that we have discussed so that we can get a consensus rating from the MHN Podcast Network community. As always, we love to hear positive feedback, but we appreciate anything anyone has to say about any of our little shows. Now, with the horrible business out of the way, let's get on to Bobby's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time, 1947's Out of the Past. And Bobby, do you have a summary for us? I do. Chris wrote it, and it's extremely long, so you got to forgive me. All right. Well, uh, well and, okay, hang and on a spoilers second. do a lot do apply. Okay. Well, hang on a second. I got to grab my cigarettes. I may go through a pack just going through the summary. Yeah, you will. Can you tell me a story? Directed by Jacques Turner, Out of the Past begins when Joe Stephanus Stephanos uh, drives into Bridgeport, California, as he looks for private detective Jeff Markham. The owner of the small town's gas station, Jeff Bailey, is secretly Markham, who's hiding out from Stephanos and his boss, Whit Sterling. However, Jeff isn't there. He's out fishing with the local hottie, Ann Miller. But Joe 
gives Jeff's deaf and dumb employee named The Kid a message to give him. Anne's parents distrust Jeff, and Anne's childhood beau, Jim, completely detests him because she reciprocates Jeff's affections. Jeff is wary of Joe's arrival in town, but he agrees to drive to Lake Tahoe to meet Wit as he knows he can't run forever. He asks Anne to ride with him so that he can tell her the truth about his past. In true noir style, there's a flashback where Jeff reveals his real name is Markham and that he was once a private investigator in New York City with a partner named Jack Fisher. Wit Sterling hired him to find his girlfriend, Kathy Moffat, after she tried to kill Wit and then ran off with $40,000 of Wit's money. Knowing that bringing Kathy back to Wit will result in her death, Jeff balks at the job. However, Wit gives Jeff his word that he won't harm her, and he states that he only wants her back. Jeff takes the job in which Wit will pay him $5,000 now and another 5000 when he finds Kathy, plus all expenses for his troubles. Jeff's partner demands half the money even though he's not part of the job since the two are partners, and they are supposed to split everything 50-50. Jeff has no problem with that request, and he heads off to track Kathy down. Jeff finds Kathy's maid and learns that she left for Florida, but based on the shots her doctor gave her before she skipped town, Jeff decides Mexico is a more likely destination, so he winds up in Acapulco, where he does find Kathy. The two become friendly over the course of a few days, but Kathy is two steps ahead of Jeff. She figured from the time she met him that Wit sent him to bring her back, and she calls Jeff out on it one moonlit night. Jeff admits Wit sent him, but at this point, the two are in love with each other, so Jeff can't bring himself to return her to Wit and certain death. Kathy admits to trying to kill Wit, but denies she took the money. She pleads for Jeff to run away with her, and like a sap, he agrees. The day the two are uh, are going to leave, Wit and Stephanos arrive in Acapulco to check up on Jeff. He claims that Kathy skipped off to Chile before he arrived, and he's giving Wit back his money because he failed in his task, but Wit re- refuses. Nobody quits Wit, and he orders Jeff to continue looking for her. Instead of heading further south, Jeff takes Kathy to San Francisco, and they live there for a while, but one hapless day at the racetrack, Jeff's old partner, Jack Fisher, still smarting from Jeff's disappearance and the loss of his $5,000 payday, spots the two. Jeff realizes that they are really in trouble, and the two lovebirds split up. Fisher pursues the two, and one day after Jeff gives Fisher the slip, Jeff drives out to the woods to meet Kathy at her cabin. Fisher shows up, too, because he's been following Kathy also. Fisher demands hush money from him, so a fistfight breaks out between the two former partners. But Kathy breaks up the altercation when she shoots Fisher dead and then leaves the scene. Jeff buries the body and returns to Los Angeles where he's been hiding out. But before he leaves the cabin, he finds Kathy's bank book, which reveals she made a deposit of $40,000, the same money she denied stealing from Wit. The flashback ends as Jeff and Anne arrive at Wit's mansion on the lake. Jeff tells Anne he will return to her, and she drives away. Inside, Wit and Jeff exchange tense pleasantries. When Kathy appears in the room, Jeff is taken aback. With nowhere to run, Kathy returned to Wit shortly after killing Fisher and told him everything that happened. Wit now informs Jeff that the only way to square things up with him is to do one more job, of course. Wit claims his lawyer, Leonard Eels, the man who helped him dodge millions in taxes, is now demanding $200,000 in hush money, or he will give the feds Wit's business records. This would surely land Wit in prison for 10 years for tax evasion. So, Wit wants Jeff to get those records, but Wit knows this is just a ruse to set him up. However, he has no choice to do what Wit demands, and he heads off to San Francisco to meet Eels' secretary, Meta Carson. Carson is secretly working with Wit, and she takes Jeff to meet Eels' apartment suite to meet him. 
There, the three share a drink, and Jeff realizes his fingerprints are now uh, all, all over the scene of what he presumes will be a murder. And he's right. He returns sometime later to prevent Eel's death, but arrives too late. Someone killed the attorney while he was gone. So Jeff hides Eels' body, and then he heads to a local club Wit owns where he grabs Wit's business records from Eels' stolen briefcase. He heads to Kathy's place in town to look around while she's out. When she unexpectedly returns, he hides in another room, but overhears her impersonate Meta Carson. She calls the office at Eels' complex, asking them to check on him because she's worried that she hasn't heard from him. The plan is such that the man working will find Eels' dead body and call the cops, framing Jeff for the murder after finding his fingerprints all over the place. When the man calls Kathy back and tells her nobody was there, she panics, and she calls Joe for help. Jeff appears and confronts Kathy. Kathy claims she gave Wit a signed affidavit that Jeff killed Fisher, and when Eels' murder is reported in the morning, he will be wanted for two murders. As Jeff flees to the mountains of Bridgeport, Kathy orders Stephanos, without Wit's knowledge or approval, to follow the kid back out of town and then kill Jeff. When the kid drives to a narrow canyon with ragged cliffs, Stephanos arrives too and spots Jeff. Stephanos aims to shoot Jeff, but right as he does, the kid hooks him with his fishing line, and Stephanos loses his balance and falls to his death. Good riddance. Jeff then returns to Witt's mansion at Lake Tahoe and tells him all about Stephanos' death and Kathy's double cross. He tells Witt to make Stephanos' death look like a suicide and leave a note that he did because he feels guilty for killing eels, thus removing the frame from Jeff. Then he offers to exchange Witt's business records for Kathy's affidavit, implicating him in Fisher's murder and $50,000. Witt agrees to the deal. Thinking he's now free from this ordeal, Jeff returns to visit Anne, and he tells her that he loves her. You can hear the birds chirping. The next day, Jeff returns to Lake Tahoe but finds Kathy has killed Wit. Of course. She tells Jeff he has no choice now but to run off with her and Wit's money, or he will be implicated in all three murders now. The numbers keep rising, folks. Jeff agrees to leave with her, but as Kathy packs her things to leave, Jeff calls the police. We didn't see that coming. The two drive off to safety, but when they come to a police roadblock, Kathy realizes Jeff betrayed her, the louse, and she shoots him dead. She then takes aim at the police, but they shoot at her and kill her instead. Once again, the body count is continuing to rise. Later, the news of Jeff's death reaches Bridgeport. Jim, still in love with lovely Anne, offers to take her on a ride, which we all want to do. They don't even talk have to talk, but she says no, and then walks across the street to Jeff's gas station where the kid sits. She asks him in broken English because the kid has to read lips if Jeff planned on running away with Kathy. The kid sits there, and he lies to her, and he nods his head. What a lie. Heartbroken, Anne returns to Jim's car, and she drives off with him. The kid smiles and salutes Jeff's name on the station's sign. The end. Films are influenced by the times they're made in, and we look back at some of the big news events in Lori Flores' Headlines of the Time. The year was 1947. First class postage stamp cost three cents. A gallon of gas averaged 23 cents. A loaf of bread, 13 cents. A new home cost an average of $6,600. And a movie ticket, 
was 40 cents. Jackie Robinson joined the Brooklyn Dodgers and became the first African-American to play on a U.S. Major League Baseball team. I don't know what my problem is tonight. Sorry. Alcohol. (laughs) Too many cigarettes. Anne Frank's The Diary of Young Girl was first published. U.S. President Harry S. Truman signed the National Security Act establishing the Department of Defense, the CIA, the National Security Council, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. India and Pakistan gained independence from Britain. Films released in 1947 included Nightmare Alley, The Lady from Shanghai, Black Narcissus, Miracle on 34th Street, Angel and the Badman, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Fun and Fancy Free, The Bishop's Wife, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, I Walk Alone, Song of the Thin Man. I named a lot of them because that was a really good film That's year. That's a great year. Yeah. And the film that Bobby picked that we're going to talk about this evening, Out of the Past. And that was 1947. All right, we usually start by talking about the casting of the film, and we'll start with Robert Mitchum, the lead playing Jeff in this film. Bobby, this is your film. What did you think of Bob Mitchum? He was amazing. I honestly don't believe that there's a better noir actor in that era than Robert Mitchum, and I think this was his first noir movie. It wasn't his first movie, but it was his first noir movie. And he was the fourth choice of the director, is my understanding. They had uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, just people that everybody expects to be in noir films were all offered the role, and they all turned it down for whatever reason. And then Mitchum was the fourth choice and got it. And this is this was what an actor in noir was supposed to do. I thought that his his delivery was perfect. I thought the way that he carried himself in and out of scenes, not only where he knew what was going to happen, but he, he basically did it with a kind of a sigh of, of expectation, knowing that he was as dirty as the person that he was putting under the, uh, you know, that he was going to be getting in trouble with or in, in, or they were getting in trouble or he was getting in. I mean, he, he, he knew what was going on the whole time and there's nothing he could do about it. He was just the patsy that was just going along with it. And I thought he was stunning. Yeah, this is definitely of the films that I had seen of his, my favorite. And as Bobby said, I agree. He was, he was perfectly cast in this role and, and I realized watching this again, which I have not seen this since I was very young, that his is the voice I always hear in my head when I think of a nor narration. And yeah, I, it is. And when I was in high school, I I was in a a play, and his was the voice that I emulated <laughs> and that I had in my head. And I didn't even remember that it was him because it's been so long since I've seen this film. But that's just the the voice I hear. And as Bobby said, I think he just is the epitome of of noir, even more so than the other pe- the other people that Bobby mentioned. It's weird. I I hear him in the narration for Tombstone. That's what I hear. Really? Yeah, because he did the narration for Tombstone. Because he. <laughs> 
because that wasn't nor so no it was not yeah, but that was like 10 million cigarettes later too yeah that's true um, i didn't remember <laughs> that he did the narration for that he does there's a the intro a monologue and then there's a little outro monologue right at the end of the film but he he doesn't do anything else doesn't make any kind He's of in scrooge though so that's yes. where you picture him which is funny because you bring that up is that you know uh, you know for most of my life that's what i know mitchum for is playing in scrooged and the winds of war you know the television miniseries which i didn't even watch i just know he was in it and i i didn't see a lot of his work and you know and over the many many years i've seen some exceptional work uh the night of the hunter uh cape fear you know those are films that i are, i really thought he did a good acting performance in but i i can't say that i ever saw anything that Robert Mitchum was like absolutely dazzling to me. This was a really good performance. I really liked him in this. I had never seen this. So the fact that Lori seen this, she had one up on me. I, I had never heard of this film until you guys reviewed it a few years ago, I think on Noirsville and right. You know, and I, I happened uh, when I reviewed cat people for the, uh, criterion podcast, the, it was the same director. And I believe the same cinematographer of this film and they referenced and showed scenes from this film in, in the, some of the making of stuff. And I went, what is that movie? That's Kirk Douglas. That's Robert Mitchum. What is that movie? And then they showed out of the past. I said, that's the movie those guys reviewed. And, and I got interested in it and I was disappointed to learn that there was no criterion, but I was like, that's a film I'd really like to watch someday. And fortunately for me, Bobby picked it so that I had the opportunity to, to swing back and hit it again. So uh, I, I really, really liked his performance. I thought it was really kind of groundbreaking. And I, and I understand how he was such a big box office draw much more now than I did before. Um, because as I said, Cape Fear and Night of the Hunter come much, much later in his career. And he wasn't as big a box office draw by that point in time. But what about Jane Greer playing Kathy in the film? The uh, very much a femme fatale, Lori. Yeah. Oh, I just hated her. She was so good, <laughs> and she was beautiful, and just she was, you know, the epitome of the femme fatale. She was just, she was amazing. I found it interesting that the marketing team was and i believe this was at rko itself that were marketing her as the woman with the mona lisa face because her she had is it bell's palsy that on her face where it froze her face from 15 years old forward the left side of her face was was frozen and in uh she had lost uh most of the feeling in it i i don't know anything about it so folks out there i'm i I hopefully I'm not. I don't want to offend anybody. My mom but, had it. Okay. Um, it did, could she feel that side, whatever she had? She completely recovered, but I've heard of other people that never regain the motion or can. Okay. So, but my mom did. Could she, when she had it, could she feel anything with the, in that location? I think her face was numb. It was numb, so she didn't really feel yeah. anything. The reason yeah. I'm asking is because, besides the fact Jane was amazing in the role, and I thought she was terrific as the femme fatale. I mean, honestly, she's like the the quintessential femme fatale in noir. Everything about what she did is what women do in noir movies. 
uh, she was probably one of the worst of all of them, actually. But what was interesting was the the scene where Kirk Douglas smacks her is on the side of her face where she has Bull's palsy, where she's numb. And and that slap was unscripted. Uh, my understanding was that Jacques Turneau, uh, Turner, uh, when he he pulled Douglas aside and said, "One take, you know, one slap," and that reaction you saw was real. Um, and Jane Greer, her whole life after that, she it wasn't just from that slap, but on set, she said that Robert Robert Mitchum treated her like a brother, uh, you know, completely protective. Whereas Douglas was just a monster on screen. She hated him. Uh, she had nothing positive to say about him as a co-star for the rest of her life. So that kind of says a lot about what was going on on set. But she was terrific, terrific. You know, I'm not very familiar with Jane Greer's collective work. I thought she did a really good job in this film. As Lori said, I hated her, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm supposed to hate her. So she does an effective job of uh, elevating that emotion out of me for a fictional character. So, I, you know, I, I really didn't like who she was. And I got continually frustrated with Jeff of why are you obsessed with this girl? You know, why, why do you keep getting yeah. into her orbit or in wit's orbit and getting yourself in these impossible situations? But uh, she does a really, really good job in the role. And I think there's a lot of realism to it. But Bobby just brought up Kirk Douglas playing wit, kind of the, the main bad guy of the film, if you will. Bobby, what did you think of Kirk Douglas's very, very early performance? Yeah, Chris and I were talking about this on our other podcast this is his second film role ever. So the fact that he was so he caught lightning in a bottle in this film is says a lot about him as an actor. He is amazing. Uh, his he's just an an angry man, and you can tell you can just see it bubbling up at every scene that he's in. That's not a that's not a nice man that is smiling there in front of him exchanging cigarette smoke. Uh, that is an evil man that is going to kill those two people if they cross him. So as far as the casting goes and the acting, I thought he was amazing. But I also – I have to preface this with the fact that I've discovered some things about Kirk Douglas over his life recently that makes me absolutely loathe him as a human being. And so it's really rough for me to cheer for him any longer in film. So um, I'm just not a not at all a fan of him as a human being. But in the role, he was terrific. Wow, I missed whatever Bobby's talking about with Kirk Douglas. So I um Oh, read about it. He 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 had his he has his own uh, autobiography where he spills all kinds of beans. And he was a major Lothario adulterer, womanizer, but he did it in very bad ways. I mean, basically Harvey Keitel, welcome – or not – is it Harvey Keitel? Harvey Weinstein. Uh, Weinstein? <laughs> Weinstein. No, I'm sorry, Harvey Keitel. <laughs> Forgive me. That He's a good guy. Um, Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein. Basically, that's – welcome to Kirk Douglas. Really? That's horrible. So, yep. Well, yeah. I thought he was he he played this part very well, and um, I was going to say it was hard for me to see him as a bad guy, but I don't know. So I don't know. I hate to. Anyway, I thought he he was really he. Again, I really hated his character, and 
he's a he's a great actor. I've never seen a performance of his where I was where I was um, disappointed in his performance. You ever seen Diamonds? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> not good. Not a good one. Not a good film. I mean, his co-star is Jenny McCarthy. Come on. <laughs> what? Yeah, Jenny McCarthy. It's that late? Yeah. It was in the <laughs> late 90s. Really? Jenny McCarthy, Dan Aykroyd. I don't even remember hearing about that. No, there's a reason why you didn't. But, <laughs> but anyways, uh, you know, Kirk Douglas is obviously a Hollywood legend. I mean, he's he has a career that, you know, it covers decades. Uh, it, much like Bobby, it's disappointing to hear about his past, even from him directly. And then, you know, what Jane Greer is, you know, she, she recounts as being on the set is kind of the hinting at what, you know, what he has described, what he did during his, his career. But I, I think the most disturbing thing to me about, and well, not, I guess not the most disturbing, but a disturbing mm-hmm. thing about as a fellow actor is just that he was very supposedly uh, wanting to take control of scenes, wanted to be about him. And yeah. Jane Greer describes it working with Mitchum, who was very much a partner, you know, uh, willing to, uh, who, who's would not only defend her honor uh, when she was being disrespected by many members of the cast, but also, you know, that in comparison to Kirk Douglas, who was just so narcissistic and everything had to be about him, that it, it, it's disappointing that that kind of, attitude and treatment of fellow actors allowed him to have the success he did over many, many decades. And one can only hope that it got better, but uh, it doesn't sound like it. I think it got worse, unfortunately. Possibly. Bobby, what about uh, symbolism and hidden meetings? I've got a couple of them that are, and again, it may be somewhat uh, not so there, these will probably be somewhat obvious. The Jane Greer character, they say uh, the story that um, the director intended with the, all of the her, all of her costumes was she was introduced wearing all white in her opening sequence where she met uh, the Jeff character down in Acapulco. And as the, as the movie progressed and as her character was making more and more devious choices, her the color of her clothing started getting more and more gray until at the very, very end uh, sequences, she's dressed in complete black, uh, black headgear, black uh black outfit black overcoat and even her revolver was black so uh, it just it it was it went along with her personality as the movie progressed uh, the kid was made fun of by Joe for being de- deaf and dumb, but the kid used his other heightened senses to discover Joe was going to kill Jeff and used his fishing pole to hook him so it isn't always the biggest and the meanest that survives. Uh, I have the racehorse alluded to by Kirk Douglas symbolized his desire to own Kathy and put her into pasture where she couldn't harm him any longer. And the incessant smoke symbolized the dirty and dreamlike (laughs) qualities that Mitchum's character had to learn to navigate and even battle through to get through to through the darkness. And ultimately, he he died in. Well, (laughs) that was in my spoiler, but basically he ultimately died in a a blaze of glory with uh, gun smoke blasting around him as well. And that was incessant incessant smoke. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. 
Didn't you get cancer just watching that? Oh my God. I mean, Chris had made that joke to me before I watched it and said, you're going to, you know, you're going to have a uh, nicotine fix after you go to watch something else after watching this film. And uh, it's, they were smoking a lot in this movie. It's just like, oh my God, they always had a cigarette in their hand in every damn scene. But that, that was overwhelming. They made a point in the commentary, the uh, his, uh, movie historian that's on the DVD version that I have, where he says that the characters actually used smoke as like a sword play, where they would actually be jousting with one another, using smoke, blowing it at one another left and right. So I thought that was an interesting perspective as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think, you know, they, they've, they've admitted that, I mean, they admit, but they acknowledge that the the costume, the evolution of the costume for uh, Kathy was purposeful, uh, you know, from the original good ver- good character at the beginning to the ultimately what she is at the end. Not that she was really that good. She was just fooling people. And by the time at the end of the film, we all know what she, what she is is she's a, a killer femme fatale. And that's, she's uh, she, she literally fits the man in black, if you will. Uh, and I, I like the aspect of the smoke uh, obscure, dirtying up the world that Jeff has to work in and live in. <laughs> I think that's a good comparison. And since I'm covering for Matt, who's not here, symbolism, hidden meanings, and I've got to come up with something off the cuff. The idea of, or sorry, not uh, symbolism, hidden meanings, but uh, his moral universe. The idea that there's not really a lot of good people in this film. There are a lot of just bad people. Even Jeff, although sometimes he has noble intent, is not a good person. He, I mean, he, he is as dirty as many of the rest of them as, as Bobby stated in his summary that, you know, he, he gets kind of frustrated that he constantly is uh, associating with these people and dirtying himself up. What did you think of that? That at the end of the day, other than Anne, I mean, who's about the only character that I think is truly good, that very similar to like unforgiven. There's not a lot of redeeming characters in this film. Lori. Very similar to Goodfellas. No, Goodfellas are and, just bad guys. I don't. I wouldn't go. But and Unforgiven, <laughs> you're not supposed to be cheering for the, the the characters in Goodfellas. It's more of a, you know, this is just a telling of their story. Unforgiven. I wasn't. Unforgiven is Clint Eastwood is supposed to be the heroic character, and he's a cold blooded killer. I I just it reminded me of Goodfellas, and that I just couldn't. And I, it's been, it's been so long since I've seen the Unforgiven. I don't, I don't remember, but I just, I couldn't relate to any character in this film, and and I don't like that when I just can't connect to anyone and put myself in anyone's shoes. Then I don't enjoy the film. Well, I will totally agree that there were pretty much very little. There was nobody outside of Bridgerton, California, that were good people in the movie. I mean, even the attorney that the attorney that got killed, Eels, he might have been the most decent of all of them, but he was a somebody that was blackmailing wit for you know for two hundred thousand dollars and ultimately died because of it. So uh, outside of Bridgerton, where you've got Anne who's trying to be a good person and choosing you know love over. You know, over a, a guy she's known since grade school, and then you've got even the kid. The kid was defending his friend from death, from sure death. Uh, 
So I, that's self-defense as far as I'm concerned. And he was just a good kid. And then you've got the whole the whole town just seemed to be just nice, um, you know, just trying to, to do the right things. So as far as the morality, I think Bridgerton would have been the, the – the moral compass of that universe. And then when you get to Tahoe and ultimately when you get to wherever, New York, San Francisco, LA, name your place where they were at Acapulco, there's just dirt everywhere and, and no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And Lori's right. It's hard to place yourself there. If you've never been one of those kinds of people. All right. Uh, what about the music in this film? A uh, score composed by Roy Webb, which I have to acknowledge, I was unfamiliar with him. Uh, he composed over 200 films, although most of them film noir or horror films. Was nominated for Academy Awards for Quality Street, My Favorite Wife, I Married a Witch, The Fighting Seabees, and The Enchanted Cottage, although he didn't win for any of those films. And all those came much earlier than this film, Out of the Past. What did you think the score in the film, Bobby? Well, I've seen the the Fighting Seabees and uh, the Enchanted Cottage, and I thought those were nice um, soundtracks that fit the fit the genre. He's a genre musician. He's not anything that you're going to go out and buy a soundtrack for, especially not from 1947. But I thought it was an extremely fitting, I mean, orchestral. Uh, arrangement and that's all you can say about it it definitely did not distract and it definitely didn't take away from anything so i guess it's a win as far as that's going to be concerned so i i really like i married a witch i didn't know that was him i the same i didn't know that was the same composer um it was it was good it wasn't my favorite and sometimes i felt it was kind of cliched kind of some of the the music it was something we've heard before but i don't know what came first you know i don't know that this was the imitator but just you know that dun, 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 you know <laughs> kind of reminded me of some of the parodies that you do you know but it was it was good it definitely um added to the film and the um drama yeah i, I have to say that you know kind of pulling a page from matt it did not distract from me. It was what I expected from a film noir film, but nothing about it was very memorable. It doesn't, it does not stick out in my mind, any of the music, even like a, a major theme to the film, which I don't even know if, if it existed, but I, 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 it's not bad. It was not distracting. It fit the, the mood that, and supported it, but it's not one, a score that I, I probably couldn't find it anyways, but I'd be running out to go and pick up. All right. What about the ending of the film? And I, I'm not, and I'm going to ask Bobby this cause he put it up in the summary that, that it seems to be very clear that when the kid tells Anne that he was going to leave, that Jeff was going to leave with Kathy, mm-hmm. that to, you made it clear in that, that the kids lined Anne so Anne can go on uh, and that Jeff wanted to be with her. But in watching the film, I didn't think it was that clear. I thought it was ambiguous and I thought it was interesting. And I know that was Chris's summary from the previous podcast, but so we know what Chris thinks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, did you have that same opinion? And what did you, what did you think about the ending as a whole? And did you think Jeff was going to leave with Kathy or with Ann? You want to ask Lori first? Sure. Okay. Lori, go ahead, Lori. I know where Lori's going to go. She's the romantic. I want to think he wanted to be with Anne, but I agree with Patrick. I don't think it was that clear when you said that he 
he lied. I I don't. Did I miss something that you know that you and Chris, or do you, I don't know if you feel as strongly or if you were just reading Chris's summary, but I, I'm not so sure that he was lying, and I don't know. I mean, I th- I wanted to think he was, but I didn't feel there definitely was a connection between him and Kathy. So, and until he saw that she had deposited the 40,000, I wasn't, I'm not so sure. It was a good ending. I will say I was kind of there. The ending really drew me in. I had kind of started to get a little bored and it got exciting again. For those of you out there that want to go back and find our previous Noirsville podcast, it's a 30-minute podcast between Chris and I. We do discuss this, and the after Chris's um, summary that I, I read, and I, I have I'm of the same opinion today as I was when we did that podcast a couple years ago, in that yes, I believe that this was uh, yes they meant it to be ambiguous. But I think they did it with a a wink to the crowd because that, and I think that's why the kid acknowledged Jeff's name at the top of it because Jeff ultimately was not a bad guy. He was trying to do the right thing. He was just stuck like every noir patsy is, the lead actor you know that always ends up in doom because of the femme fatale that takes him out. Uh, 99% of the time and in this situation he was in a a no-win situation and I think that the kid made a choice for for Jeff's legacy which would be that Anne ends up happy in the end which is I think what Jeff's ultimate intention was his intention was not to go to Kathy that was obvious when he when she showed up on that at, at breakfast with wit he was done he knew that it was over and he knew that she was dirty he'd seen her kill one person uh, attempt to kill another person and then ultimately kill two more right in front of him so basically he's you know he knows that she's evil incarnate and that he has nowhere to go but with her away even though he's promised Anne to go back to her so ultimately yes i believe that the kid intentionally chose to lie to her and say no he was he was going to he was going to leave with Kathy on purpose when in reality he didn't want to ruin Anne's life and i think Jeff would have been right there with the kid saying you're right you know, make sure that she knows to go off with the other guy and be, live the rest of her life knowing that she's safe now. So that's ultimately what I believe the ending was. And I do like the ending. I thought for a noir film, which most of them end at the at the police shootout, that's where most films end and in or noirs. And in this case, they went the step further. And I think they they gave Bridgerton their heart back at the end. All right. Well. I tend to agree with Lori that I think it's ambiguous and, and I think, but I agree with Bobby that this takes it a step further. It doesn't end with a shootout, you know, and a, you know, a dead hand falling onto the ground, implying that the characters are dead and that, you know, fade to black that what I think the, the, the creators did is to give a sense of hope and give that ambiguity, ambiguity to the film. A portion of the audience wants Jeff 
to have a redemptive act, wants Jeff to be at heart, which I think he was a good character, but he can't deny his ties to Kathy and his attraction and affection towards Kathy. And so I think by having that last, that coda at the end allows the, those audience members who want to like Jeff to excuse his, his behavior, what he does in the film and to make him a much more redeeming character. But I'm more cynical <laughs> as a, a film watcher. And I like the idea that potentially he was going to run off with Kathy a little bit more than him living the Hollywood ending with Anne, even though they don't get it. I, I think there's a lot of evidence that supports that he was going to end up with Anne. I mean, he calls the police, you know, if he wants yep. to, to take off with Kathy, it makes no sense for him to call the police. But I, I also think he, you know, I, I think there's an element that he possibly knew he wasn't getting out of that situation with clean hands that he was going to go either go get arrested and go down with everyone, or he was going to get killed. And so I don't think he really believed he was going to have that happily ever after with Anne. I think that's the more likely outcome. So I guess it's how you define how he ends up with Kathy in prison or dead with Kathy. But I never, I, I don't think Jeff ever thought he was going to end up living the, the good life with Anne, you know, working at the gas station ever. But I agree with Bobby. I like the end. I like that ambiguity. I like it that there was not a Hollywood ending. I, I, I just really like the ending of that film. All right. Films Legacy nominated, surprisingly, for no Academy Awards. Uh, AFI. Did you hear Laurie's list, though? What? <laughs> Did you hear Laurie's well, yeah, list true. of great That's movies? That's true. Yeah, there was a lot of great movies that year. There was wow. some, some crap in there, too. But there was, there was a lot of great movies in 1947. AFI uh, was nominated in 1998 as one of the 400 movies considered for the top 100 greatest American movies of all time. Didn't make the final list. In 2001, it was nominated for the 400 movies nominated for the 100 Years 100 Thrills list. Ultimately, did not make the top 100. And in 2002, was nominated as one of the 400 movies for the 100 Years 100 Passions list. Uh, ultimately, did not make the final list there as well. The film was remade in 1984 as Against All Odds with Jeff Bridges, Ra uh, Raquel Ward, and James Woods, which is surprising because I was watching this and I'm going, I know I've never seen this film, but I, this story sounds so familiar. And then when I was doing the research, I went, oh yeah, that is against all odds, which I have seen a couple of times. Uh, the film is included in Roger Ebert's great movies list. Also included in the, the book, a thousand and one movies you must see before you die in 1991. It was placed into the national film registry in the library of Congress and rotten tomatoes has it at 95% critics and 92% audience. So what do you think of the film's legacy? And would you put it in the top 100 Lori? You know, um, I have heard that many people think this is the greatest film noir film ever made. And I, and I can see why, why people think that. I thought the, I think for me, the acting and the cinematography were the highlights of this film. It was just so beautifully shot. The, the outdoors and um, the, I believe everything was shot on location I mean, it looked like it to me, didn't look like a, a lot to me, a studio lot to me. So I, th I think it, it lives up to its legacy, but it is not in my top 100. But I, I do 
I, I do think it is a really well-made film, and I really enjoyed it, and I think everyone should see it. All right, I'll let Bobby wrap up. I really enjoyed this film. I was kind of surprised since I'd never even heard of it. Never, I can't even recall a box for it when I worked in the video store for a decade, which is really surprising. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed watching it. I like film noir. I, I, I can't honestly say I think it's the best, the absolute best film noir ever made. Uh, but it's up there, and I've only seen it one time. So give me a couple of rewatch. Maybe maybe I'll gr- get a greater appreciation for the film and the the revisits. Uh, but it's it's definitely a, a contender for that role, especially coming out of the 1940s. Strong acting performances across the board. Uh, I agree with Laurie. The cinematography was beautiful. I think it's a great story. Has a great ending. But I'm not going to put it in my top 100. This is one I could revisit. And, and this is one I probably want to watch again before I make my final top 100. So I'm going to keep it out for now. But I really did enjoy watching this film. It, it really caught me off guard how much I liked this film. And I, I would highly recommend it for anyone out there who has not seen it. However, this is Bobby's pick, so we're going to give him the final say. Well, as far as the the legacy of it, the lists that you're pulling from, you're correct. I think that, that, that the legacy is it finishes just out of everybody's top whatever fill-in-the-blank here a list. So it may not be in your top 100. It may not be in the top 500 or 400 of, of the greatest of all time, so on and so forth. But if you go to the correct list, which would be the greatest film noirs of all time, which is – that's a very distinct genre, uh, which those films usually are not Oscar-worthy for the most part. They're the ones that stand the test of time because they're exciting for a 40s and 50s type era film this is actually finished it finishes most of the time somewhere between it's usually almost always in the top 10 if not near the the fifth place in one i'm looking at right now from the independent from the uk is it finished seventh of all the the noirs of all time so i think those are the lists where if you were to go to this where there it's top 10 noir I think that's fitting, and I believe that they they got it right. And the the Library of Congress uh, legitimized it by by putting it in in their list as well. Yeah, and one of the first I, films to go in too. I mean, it wasn't exactly. the first group, but it was it was. I think it was close to one of the first within the first three years of the inception of that list. Yeah, it's. I think this is a gorgeous movie, as what you guys have been saying exactly. I, I, I can't add much to it. I've done two podcasts on it now on our network because I think that highly of this film. I've seen it three times now. Um, well, four if you count the, the commentary that I watched as well. Only within the last three to four years that I've actually seen it that many times, which is for a noir, that's extremely rare for me to go down that path with the same movie. So I, I, I just believe this is a, a, a worthy movie that stands the test of time. It, it, it personifies 1947 in the 
best of ways. I can't tell you how much I just I felt like I was in a time machine sitting there watching this film. It was just it's gorgeous. And I believe that those of you that are out there that have never seen it, please do put it on your to watch list. It's worth it. You know, to own it is up to you personally, but as far as the watching it, it really should be if you're watching a noir film, this should be top five noir without a doubt. And I think this tells you what a noir film from the 40s and 50s had. It has it has all the ingredients. Uh, I mean, it has the the Patsy uh, lead. It has the femme fatale that kills people for real on screen. Uh, it has the the wicked mobster boss that's driving him to do all the bad. Uh, it has all kinds of subplots that, uh, and and. Uh, supporting characters that have something to do with it that all have their hands dirty. Uh, you have the innocent people that get hurt in the end, and you've got the the fatal ending uh, where somebody or all of them end up dead uh, or at least injured beyond repair. So, I mean, everything about this screams noir, and it was gorgeously filmed, good music. The direction is awesome. So, yes, this is a fantastic film. Um, will always be in my top 100 for forever now. And, uh, folks, I just think it's worth your time. All right. Well, that does it for this month's review of Out of the Past. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little monthly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Pinterest or Twitter at MHMemories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourselves informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed yourselves, to subscribe to our account on YouTube, uh, where you can keep, keep up to date as to our recent podcast releases, and you can give us some feedback, either with a thumbs up, thumbs down, or a comment about our review of the film or a film that you'd like us to review on Movie House Memory sometime in the future if you believe it's a top 100 film. Well, that is it for this episode of Movie House Memories. Join us next time when it's Lori's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time, and she's nominating 1962's The Manchurian Candidate. Until then, I'm Patrick. And I'm the leaf that blows from gutter to gutter. I'm Lori. And we'll see you all next time at our house. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Movie House Memories, Hiding Your Reality, is provided courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. <laughs>